Welcome to the podcast. I am Shane Barker, your host of Shane Barker's Marketing Madness Podcast. In this episode, we'll talk about how to generate more content ideas to build your brand. My guest, Melanie Diesel, is the founder of StoryFuel, a company that helps marketers tell better brand stories. She's an international keynote speaker and an award-winning content strategist who loves the art of storytelling. Before she started her company, she was the first editor of branded content at the New York Times. All right, Melanie Diesel, obviously you guys, we're excited about having you on the podcast today. We're going to be talking about like how to generate like content ideas to build your brand because obviously you've been doing this for a long time, keynote speaker. There's a lot of fun stuff. We'll kind of get into that as, as we go into the podcast about what you've done and your experience. But let's start this off like where did you grow up? I mean, like where did you, where did this, this whole life of Melanie start? <laughs> the whole the life of Melanie, the origin That's story. It. It was, a, it was a September day in, in Waterbury, mm-hmm. Connecticut. That's where I grew up. Is actually so about two and a half hours north of where I live now in the New York City area. I joke that I didn't make it very far. So I grew up in Connecticut. I went to school in Connecticut. I went to grad school in upstate. And then I settled here in New York City metro. So I've stayed on relatively the same series of highways my entire life. That's funny. <laughs> so I've actually been to Connecticut. I mean, you talk about a beautiful state. I was, yeah. just how green it is. Like, and what I like, there's some in California. So our plots of land are like, you know, like I actually do real estate as well. So the reason why I'm telling you that, like our plots of land are usually tiny, right? And then you yeah. got to Connecticut, they're like, you can't get anything less than 10 acres or something like, and it's the prices are great, right? I mean, compared to California, because we're all, you know, sure. expensive and everything. But like, I was like thoroughly impressed. In fact, we went by Mike Tyson. This was, I don't know if he still has a house, but the girl that I was visiting is a friend of mine, Sarah, that I met answered him, whole nother conversation. <laughs> and we're like still friends today. And we went, my wife and I went to her wedding and she's just been a lifelong friend. But we actually, she took us by, it was Mike Tyson's house. I don't know how many years ago, this is maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, in Connecticut, the thing was just a a mansion. But I think what she was laughing about, I don't know if this is true, but she's like, all of Mike Tyson's maids are white. I was like, ooh, look at that. (laughs) Like a Mike, but like, yeah, flip it. That's right. I'm going to have white people at my place, which is awesome. I'm I'm equal opportunity either way. I think if that's (laughs) being good, then that's that's cool. That's cool. Well, it's funny too, because I think Connecticut, like we have a little bit of a branding issue, I would say, is that people think that all of Connecticut is, you know, country clubs and like lacrosse teams. And there's a significant portion of Connecticut that, you know, is like below the poverty line that is very industrial. You know, you hear Bridgeport, Connecticut is so much so that it was a joke on Family Guy about Bridgeport, yeah. Connecticut, right? So, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the number one producer of abandoned factories. So there's a lot of diversity in Connecticut that I think people don't necessarily know if you didn't grow up there. But as much as I, I love Connecticut, it was always my goal to get to New York. Oh, it yeah. being so close that was like reaching for it like that's where I want to be that's where the action is and everybody not everybody but I mean a good percentage of people always you know you they want to usually get out of their home state for the or city for the most not always but I feel like you know it's like especially with New York right because you have New York the big city of dreams and all that stuff and you know (laughs) Connecticut doesn't have that but it just doesn't have that same I guess that same appeal especially in the industry that we're in right it's like kind of exposure and being out there and speaking just has it's a little sexier I guess but you know not that Connecticut's not nice if there's someone out there who their lifelong dream was to grow up and move to Connecticut please reach out let us know I'm not sure if those people are out there maybe they are but I think New York definitely takes the cake there which is not you know (laughs) I actually would love to have a place in it just it just for me it just seemed a lot slower pace right which is I live once again living in California and, and I do enjoy that I don't know 
because I naturally talk fast and I'm always in fifth gear. I don't know if I could like grind it back to fourth gear. I would love yeah. to like the idea of that. Like my wife's an example. I'll go and sit down. Like my mom's like, you just can't sit down. Can't like with anything. <laughs> like, I'm like vacuum. I'm doing this. And she's like, are you like on drugs or something? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, cause my mom knows that I, you know, growing up, I've always been this little wiry guy, yeah. but it's just crazy. Like, but I enjoy it's no different than like yoga for me. Like I look at yoga and God, that would be awesome if I could just focus on that and do that. But I'm just thinking about, Hey, what am I going to work tomorrow? And who am I going to interview? And Hey, what do we got here? We, hey, we do improve this. And so there's always, but that's your superpower, right? I mean, that's part of what makes you who you are and, and allows you to do the things that you do is the fact that you've always got at least one gear turning somewhere, sort of marinating something in the background, right? Yeah. You should be a counselor or something. I, I, I agree with <laughs> 100%. That is my superpower. I mean, I've actually tried to medicate to try to, to stop that superpower, but maybe I should not. Maybe I should just go full blown and- Just harness it. I'm going to go get a new shirt that says, I got a new superpower. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, good. I like that. I'm going to tell my wife I have a new superpower and she's going to be like- There you go. Go do the dishes. <laughs> so um, how big was your family growing up in Connecticut? My family was, my extended family was huge. My little family, my immediate family was small. So my parents split when I was very young and it was just me and my sister. And we went back and forth between my dad and my mom who were both very close to us. But my mom is one of eight. So, you know, when you start wow. counting cousins and aunts and uncles and all of that, you know, Christmas parties were a, a raucous event. <laughs> That's awesome. I, you know, it's so funny. I, my family, I mean, I have obviously two sides of my family. My biological dad lives in Utah, blah, 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 long story. But our families were always pretty small. Like when it came to like reunions and stuff, like we didn't have any big, and I'm, I'm always kind of envious of people that have large families and have, I mean, you just do family reunions and stuff like that. Well, you know, I guess we would if we all lived much further apart, but I'll be honest, most of my mom's family, like we're 20, 30 minutes from where I grew up in Connecticut. So, you know, reunion is birthday parties, weddings, you know, graduations, everybody's there. It's big, you know, it's like we were thinking about, you know, my husband and I are expecting our first child any, any day now, really. And as we were looking at the baby shower, it was like just a small little baby shower, just aunts and uncles. And it was like, yeah, that's going to be 60 people. Like, you know, when you get two sides of the family that are in his yeah. family's big too, it adds up fast. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's only not awesome when you have to pay for all that. But the other right. side of it is, is <laughs> family and you have that kind of everybody working together and, you know, and it's, it's nice to have that because you never know when you might need it. It's true. We'd love to have big families and don't. And so, you know, that's, that's awesome. You guys have to do those things. And you adapt, you know, I remember when we were younger, because there were so many of my cousins, my aunts and uncles were like, man, I'm going to go broke if I have to buy 47 Christmas presents. So yeah. they devised the system where all the adults would put their kids' names into a hat and you drew as many kids as you had. So so you have three kids, you draw three kids, and you get a bigger gift from all the aunts and uncles as opposed to everyone having to buy tons of tinier gifts. So it worked out well. We developed a system. <laughs> I tell you, if I had to buy 47 gifts, I just wouldn't make it to Christmas. Like I, yeah. I, am, I, am, like the, I am the epitome of I'm going to put all males into one category, which is very terrible. And I'm, just, <laughs> I'm like literally the guy that like, I'm terrible at Christmas. Like, I love Christmas. Like I love it, but I, I'm terrible at the gift giving and all that kind of, I'm just not, I wish I was better at it. I mean, my wife can contest to this. Like I'm, I'm just, <laughs> sometimes I have great ideas and I'll put some stuff together. Then other times I just, I don't know, I guess it's, I don't know. I know it's one of those things. Love Christmas, but the idea of buying tons of presents and doing this and doing yeah. that, it's just a little bit of a, like Amazon has saved me, which is kind of sad, right? Yeah, no. I, how many, I live there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm probably, I should probably have gotten some stocks or something or restocks. Well, it works really well for me. I am also, I really like the idea of gift giving. I think it's one of my like love languages. You know, it's like a way that I like to show that I appreciate people. But similarly, I often have a hard time figuring out what does this person want or need. So I actually have whatever your task management or your note-taking system, 
I keep track and I make note of when people mention certain things. So someone has a favorite team or a favorite TV show or, you know, some new food item that they're just obsessed with. I'll keep track there so that when it comes time for gift giving, it's like, oh yes, that person has a new hobby. They've just started knitting. Okay. I'm going to get them this fancy. So you can kind of like have those notes to refer back to because otherwise, I mean, how are we supposed to remember all these things? So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do you a huge favor right now. I like the San Francisco 49ers. My birthday is July 30th. (laughs) My anniversary, let's not talk about that. It's in March. Yeah. I'll do I'll send you an email with everything and I'll just kind of tell you, I already have all your favorites links and stuff to Amazon. I might be an affiliate too. So I might make double <laughs> money. Present. I mean, it's just the things that I do. I don't get the wrong stuff because I feel the connection between us is very strong at this point. Yep. There we go. Awesome. So now I know what to get and yeah. where to send it. Perfect. The only reason why I do the podcast so that I can try to get <laughs> out of the people that I interview because that's you know, a smart way to go. That's it. I'll let you know how it ends up by the end of the year. If I ended up <laughs> keep doing with the podcast or if I'm like, that was a bust. I got to figure out some way to hustle people in a different manner. You got to do what you got to do. I know. <laughs> it's a doggy dog world. So tell us an interesting fact about growing up. I mean, is there anything like, you know, people would never imagine we did this or this happened or, you know, you had, I don't know, like you had a dog with two legs or something like, what, <laughs> and like give me some. You know, I mean, I think I got a couple, like, what are those like two truths and a lie or like the unexpected yeah. fact about you, right? So you can't see me, those of you who are listening, but I'm a fairly small person. I'm 5'3". I'm a small, a small person. I was at one point in the top five javelin throwers in Connecticut when I was in high school. It was just like one of those random, nobody at my school would throw javelin. So we would always yeah. lose the points in the meet. And I was like, that seems like fun. I'll figure out how to do that. I'll just appoint myself javelin throw of the school. And I, um, you know, I just sort of like taught myself how to do it. I got really into it. I had no competition, so I could own that area of the field and had all the yeah. equipment to myself. And by the time I graduated high school, I was uh, an all-star javelin thrower, which is a skill I've not used since, obviously. <laughs> I was going to ask you, do you think that's the reason your husband would never leave you for safety? It reasons? may be, because if he's less than 110 feet from me and I've got a javelin, he's in trouble, you know? Mama's going to bring the fire. <laughs> No, I get it. I get it. That's, that's good. So if anything happens to him, we, we have it on the podcast that you potentially would do something, which is cool. I, I would never use this against you or in a court of law. I mean, that being said, if anyone were to turn up having been brought down by a javelin, I mean, the list of potential people is probably pretty small. Yeah. I mean, especially because your name's on a plaque in Connecticut. So I mean, you would, they probably would yeah, they track me down fast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We don't want to do that. But we'll figure out other ways. <laughs> You need to do something like that. And you did say that you currently live, what, you're in New York now. The city yeah, so I'm just across the river from New York City on the New Jersey side in Jersey City. Quick access to the city, which is amazing, but I get a little bit more. We talked about like the pace and the space that yeah. you would get in Connecticut. So yeah. I feel like, you know, Jersey City offers us kind of the best of that. It's about 10 minutes for me to get into New York, into New York City. But we've got way more space. We've got, you know, there's greenery outside. The rent is a lot cheaper. So a nice compromise there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I like is if you can just tap into the city. So I live, I'm in Sacramento and my brother and every, my family, a lot of family or some of my family lives in San Francisco. And I, of course, it's longer than 10 minutes. But I like the fact I can go into San Francisco an hour and a half away. In Sacramento, I can go to Tahoe. I can go to the beach. Yeah. Just, like I said, not 10 minutes away, but I do like the accessibility of it and that's the reason and it's not quite as expensive as these you know San Francisco or these other areas that are you know they're obviously going up and up in value and I enjoy being in the kind of the hub of that and it sounds like you're kind of in the same position it's like you can go tap into the crazy New York life or you can also kind of stay back and kind of have the you know a little bit more space and with the family well it's funny and 
I've got to ask you, how often do you actually take advantage of that? Or is it for you, is it more the perception of like, I'm close to the city, I could go if I wanted, because that's where I've realized I'm at at this point in life. I So this is funny. So when I was younger, I used to go to San Francisco pretty often. And I so it's nice because I actually take, this is my little thing. So I have a, a bus, it's called Megabus. And no, they're not a sponsor. But if you're listening to Megabus, you should reach out to me because I'm a fan. <laughs> but what we do is like from Sacramento, it's maybe a quarter of a mile from my house. So I go on a bus and it's like 6 a.m. They have internet and all this fun stuff. And I get a little, VI, not VIP, but it, you know, I pay an extra three bucks or whatever it is. It's cheap. <laughs> I do it ahead of time. Like literally I've gotten bus rides from San Francisco or Sacramento, San Francisco for like $5. You have internet, I get stuff done, I get dropped off and then I can Uber and Lyft into any meeting I want. Go do that. Go meet my brother. They just had a baby. Noah, shout out to Noah Barker. And so I can do whatever in the city and then I can come back and jump on this bus and not have to drive back and fight the traffic and stuff. So I used to do it quite often. I don't do it as often because I don't have as many clients in San Francisco, but I yeah. do have my brother that's out there. So I'm trying to get there. And I try to fly. If I do anything international, usually I fly out of San Francisco because it's usually cheaper. And, I, and then I can stay that's night true. in San Francisco with my brother. So it's not as like originally I thought, oh, I'm going to be in San Francisco three times a month. And that used to be the deal. It's not quite that anymore. So we yeah. slow down. I'm like, there's no reason to go. I'm married. I'm married for 13 years and my son in college. Like, I don't really need to go out to San Francisco and, and go live. Yeah. There. And that's what it, how it is for us. I mean, like I said, we're about 10 minutes. It, 10 minutes on the subway gets us right into World Trade Center, right downtown, right? So when we first moved over here, we were both moving from in Manhattan or in Brooklyn. So we were like, oh, we'll be so close. We'll still go to the same places. Yeah, and yeah. now it's like, if I get in once a month and it's only 10 minutes, but like yeah. <laughs> we just, I don't have the need for it anymore as you slowly transition out of that. And at the same time, the idea of moving further away so that I'm no longer 10 minutes from the city seems terrifying for no yeah. reason. <laughs> I don't know. It's just weird. Yeah, it's accessibility. No, I mean, it's no different than having a gym membership that you haven't gone to for three years, right? You're yeah, like, well, right. I don't want to cancel it. Because then I, what if I do want to go? Yeah, but what happens if that one day I wake up and I'm like, God, I got to pump these arms up today. But then the idea of the whatever, 30 bucks a month, and it's like you're still committed. You know, it's like the same thing with New York. You know, I might have to tap it in New York. I haven't done it for two years, but you just never know. You never know. You have a baby and the baby might want to go to New York. So there we go. She might. There we go. Oh, she. Oh, <laughs> it's a she. Ah, look at that. Yeah. Congratulations. She, she just might want to go on adventures in the city, you know? Yeah, she wants to go hang out. I get it. <laughs> so you said you went to college in Connecticut. So where did yeah. you go to college at? So I studied undergrad at UConn, University of Connecticut. There we go. The Huskies. Yeah, Huskies. Exactly. Probably because of our women's basketball team, right? Probably. When we were talking about what does Connecticut have, it has no professional sports teams of any kind except for UConn women's basketball. That is our that is our state official state team. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I went not too far from home. It was nice. It was a great school. I studied journalism there. It was a, a fairly small program a lot of really dedicated professors, and I was really involved with the student newspaper, but it was also an under-resourced program. You know, all the love in the world to that program. It was just, you know, it's a state school. We didn't have a lot of amazing facilities there, so I actually went to grad school up at, at Syracuse at the Newhouse School. They have, like, a, an amazing uh-huh. communication school there, so for me, it was, I had the most amazing professors and, and such a close-knit community. It was a small program at UConn, and then to go up, you know, to Syracuse, which was a much bigger school and had just state-of-the-art facilities and all this technology. It was kind of like a good marriage of both sides. I got to got to see what both of those were like and build these two different networks that both helped me get to the city. So I think they, they complemented each other really well. That's cool. That's one thing that I wish. And I mean, I went to a number of different colleges because I was just couldn't fully commit to anything because I wanted to travel. And I mean, it took me 10 years to graduate from college, <laughs> not because I was failing out. It's just because I just was like, wanted to travel and do this and do that. And yeah. So I, 
had some fun doing that. But that's one thing I really wish I would have gone away to college. I ended up graduating from Sacramento State College, CSUS here in Sacramento. I went to other colleges here and there, but I just wish I would have like had that, like that UConn or something. Yeah. Yeah. I just didn't really have that. I was telling my son, he was like, I'm going to go to a local college here. And I go, no, you're not. Like, I'm literally (laughs) going to kick you out of the house and we'll help you pay for it. We'll take care of it. But just you, you're going to go. Like, I need you to go somewhere because I don't want you to look back and go, oh, I wish I didn't stay local. And so he's, he's an hour and a half away. Yeah. I mean, I think that's far enough for him. And they don't have a huge sports team, but he's enjoying himself. So, you know, it's one of those things. And I think it's good because at least when I look back on it, I feel like it marked different periods of my life. You know, you look back on your life and you, I don't know, for everyone it's different. Maybe it's where you lived or who you were with at the time, you know, all those different things, the city where you were. But for me, I can clearly see the growth that happened at those different points. Like the, the person that I was, the skills that I learned, the people I knew in that one place. And then I moved to this other school. I was only in Syracuse for a year, but a different community, different mentors, learning different skills. It kind of like, it's different chapters in that life that kind of lead you up to the next point. And so having those clear markers when you can go away, I think definitely helps you recognize that you're in a new stage. Well, and it's foundational, right? I mean, everything, yeah. and that's, that's the way I look at it, everything in life and everything happens for a reason, right? And then the people that you meet, I think I'm very, I believe in that, that like there's, you know, certain things happen, whether it's good or bad happen for a reason. And I'm a firm believer in that. And it's hard, it's difficult to understand really what that is while it's happening. But I believe that, you know, I look at things and, you know, I've had things in my life that you'd look at it and go, that's just crazy. Like, how'd you even survive that? Like I have things I haven't even talked about on the podcast. We'll talk about probably at another point, but just things you're like, wow, that's crazy crazy like it's just but you know once again I look at it like hey, I get punched in the face we got a few things that happen and it's all good didn't kill me so hey we just we got to keep on moving we got to keep on shaking so yeah and it's also easy I mean I, there's this fun game I forget this exercise where I picked it up from but thinking about how long ago and what the real meaning here is how recently was your life substantially different right so if you can look back and say wow six months ago I hadn't started this new health regimen or three years ago I hadn't met my partner or I hadn't gotten this job for everyone it's different yeah. but thinking about what's that point where it was substantially different and it helps you see how interrelated all those parts of your life are because even that job you hated that partner that you know didn't end up serving you well you know all those things they take you one step closer to wherever you end up all good stuff i mean that's yeah. the thing is that, you know people will say like oh I, my business failed and i'm like well but did it though like what did you learn from that like i understand financially you might feel bad or you sure, might sure sure for three, six months. But the idea is, is like, but if you learn something from it, it'll make you a stronger person, a better business person, whatever that is, there is something to learn with everything. And I think people sometimes miss that, you know, and I, I think that's important because once again, it's like, there's certain things that you, maybe you don't realize. And I think that what you're talking about is the going through that is awesome because then you kind of go, oh, wait, wait, this happened because of this. Oh, and that happened because of this guy. That was a terrible job, but I met my wife because that was my ex-boss's, whatever it is, right? And it's like, exactly. Second, this is a lot more intertwined than what you think, right? Because one of those things, if, instead of making a left, making a right, changes a lot of things the for you. The whole course of your life, yeah. yeah. Which is kind of nuts if you think about it. Well, yeah, and I look back and I think like, well, at the time when I was choosing colleges, like just since that's what we were just talking about, it seems like this huge, amazing decision of like, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? And I remember being somewhat disgruntled at the time that I was going to UConn. Like I had other schools that maybe would have been my a higher choice for me or a higher priority. And I think back and I'm like, gosh, I have no idea what that life would have been had I gone out of state at that age, had I not met the friends that I met or had the experiences and the professors that I did, your entire life trajectory could be different. Same thing, like you said, for a job or a partner or moving to a new city. It's wild, like how all those different 
fractals that, that take off and all those different paths that could have happened. It really is mind blowing. I mean, literally it's a, remember those choose your own adventure books? Yeah. Like, like, hey, go to page seven or go to page 19. And I mean, it's literally that. I mean, I was so, you know, we'll jump into kind of the meat of the podcast here in a second, but I remember <laughs> thinking there was a point where I was going to go to Chico, which is actually where my son's going to school. I wanted to go to Chico or I saw the movie Goodwill Hunting and I wanted to go to Boston. Like I was like, Boston's the place that I'm going to go for whatever reason. Yeah. Like Robin Williams and, you know, Matt Damon. That was like a finale. Like really was one of those movies that like touched me. Then I ended up going to Chico, but I'm like, God, what happens if I would have went to Boston, right? Or I think, like, what happens if I would have done an early startup in San Francisco? Because everybody that I know that went to San Francisco did an early startup, like made money for the most part. Yeah. But it's just kind of a crazy, and I'm not saying I don't like the direction that I've taken, because once again, I look like this is where I'm going anyways. Like, I'm just, I'm kind of driving, you know, I'm just kind of steering the wheel a little bit. <laughs> was I got to make a right or left and somebody I'm like okay cool let's go this way and it's okay with that you know it's you just never know what's going to happen but I just it's kind of exciting to see it's it's well it's kind of fun to see obviously this whole thing unfold but yeah we talk about unfolding and all this other fun stuff what about your career journey I mean we talk about everything's foundational obviously you have story fuel right but yep how did that come into play like what did you do when you got out of college like how did this whole thing play out it's so funny. It's so on point with the discussion we were just having about kind of going with the flow and not knowing where things take you. So like I said, I studied journalism. So I studied investigative journalism as an undergrad. I wanted to be one of those like serious old school reporters, like uncovering injustice and stuff. Sure. And then my master's, I studied arts and cultural criticism because I recognized that I was sort of like too much science. and needed a little more art and voice and creativity. So I was trying to balance those things. And then I graduated and realized this was right as all the newsrooms across the country were digitizing and downsizing and there was a lot of layoffs happening. We still hadn't recovered from the recession. And so there weren't many teams of investigative reporters that were around, never mind hiring. And same thing for arts teams. You know, you didn't see art critics on the staff anymore. So I had all these skills and I didn't know what the heck I was going to do with them. I could not find a job doing the thing that I imagined I would be doing. So it was actually a, a recruiter that I had initially reached out to about a job that folded, you know, didn't exist anymore. She reached out to me and said, well, I've got this job at the Huffington Post. It's sort of like a reporter job, but you're going to work for in the marketing department. You know, you're going to create content, but for the sponsors, for the advertisers, it's not exactly what you were looking for, but hey, it'll get you to New York and maybe it's a good fit. So I told you before that was part of my goal. I wanted to get to New York. So I thought, all right, HuffPost is a great brand. I'll take this gig. My title was something like native ad product manager, right? Like something totally unrelated to what I had studied seemingly. And I took this job that, you know, truthfully, it was the early days, but I was a content strategist is what I was doing. I was coming up with content ideas for HuffPost's advertising partners. And then I was executing those on HuffPost platform. So our team eventually wised up to the fact that native ad product manager is not a real thing and doesn't really indicate what we're doing. And we became HuffPost partner studio and we became content strategists and, you know, we yeah. sort of got with the lingo. Yeah. But yeah, so I got there kind of by accident and Again, talking about just like the way things work out, this was the early days of every publisher, digital or print, was realizing that this was a revenue stream to be able to create content for brands. So everyone was starting one of these teams. So I had been on the team at HuffPost Partner Studio for exactly three months when I was the most senior member of the team because everyone else had been hired away to another publisher to come start their team. 
So three months in, I graduated three months ago thinking that I was going to go into journalism. Suddenly, the most senior member of this branded content team that I didn't know was a thing three months ago, I'm being tasked with coming up with new product ideas and I'm working with amazing brands like Citigroup and Amex and Johnson & Johnson and Cheerios and all these amazing brands. And it was such a cool opportunity, but I was still feeling that ache of like, is this listicle of recipes containing Greek yogurt fulfilling for me on like a creative and skill-based level? You know, it fits the audience, it fits the brand message, but I wasn't loving the work. You know, it isn't always the metric for success, but you know, I was hoping I might be able to to find some more, a little more joy in it. And so I got very lucky that right around the time I had been there about a year, we grew the HuffPost partner team to about 15 people. And then the New York Times announced that they too were going to be starting one of these brand content teams. So I was able to make the transition over to there. The New York Times, I was the first editor of branded content there and helped build out what ultimately became T-Brand Studio. They're now a 150 plus person, you know, sort of studio agency team that creates all their brand content. But that was able to get me a little bit closer to the kind of work that I wanted to be doing. The kind of work that fits in contextually to the New York Times, the kind of even branded content was much closer to the journalism that I wanted to be doing than maybe lists and blog posts, you know, that are are more native in a HuffPost environment. So that was a big transition for me, for sure. That's crazy. So you're like moving up the food chain like no other. Like yeah, you. lightning fast. And it was it was a little terrifying, to be honest. So yeah. at the time, I got this job at, at the New York Times. I think I was, was 24. And I was the first editor of brand content at the Times. I felt so much pressure to make sure that we were setting good standards. There were a lot of people who were very skeptical about an organization, a legacy news organization like the New York Times doing branded content, right? That's scary, which I fully understood. And I think part of the advantage and the reason that job was such a good fit for me is I came from the world of journalism. So I had this tremendous respect for the brand. And I also was willing to fight for our independence and and keeping everything that needed to be separate, separate because I was a New York Times fangirl. I mean, you know, (laughs) I was from the journalist perspective, I respected that so much. I wanted to protect it even from myself you know <laughs> yeah yeah for sure and then how did that play into like story fuel because obviously you I mean after one year you were like the queen of New York it sounds like <laughs> right I mean yeah you've been, that you've escalated been, quickly yeah <laughs> ever in New York nobody even want to go back to New York you're like because I've worked for those I've already kind of ruled the whole city <laughs> here over yeah. 10, 10, 10 minutes away so how did that play into to story fuel yeah, so I had I had one more step actually before I started my own company. So I was at I had been at the New York Times for again, I did about a year there. And then Time Incorporated, which at the time, you know, it's since been broken apart and acquired, but Time Incorporated at that point had 35 magazines in the US, Time, People, Entertainment Weekly, Sports Illustrated, like really amazing big brands. And they were looking for someone to build a content studio at a corporate level that would service all of those magazines. So they brought me over from the New York Times to do that. My title was Director of Creative Strategy, which was like a big open-ended title there. But yeah, essentially my task was to create the infrastructure for this content team that would ultimately serve all of our different magazines. And I was noticing as I started to get to around a year, it was like eight or nine months, I thought, I'm in the same situation I've now been in twice, which is I get brought in at the early stages. I help build the infrastructure. I help set the products. I help build the team and put the processes in place. And I'm going to be out of a job in a few months because it's working well. And it'll be time for me to move on somewhere else and start that process again. And so I had this moment where I thought, 
I'm starting to look like a job hopper when I think I'm actually a consultant. I think my strong suit is actually coming in for a limited period of time, assessing what's wrong, assessing what needs to be implemented to get brand content rolling in some way or, or optimize it if it's already happening. You know, help put those pieces in place, get things moving, get things changed, and then move on to the next brand or move on to the next company, the next publisher. So that was sort of my realization of like, I'm just going to have to keep changing jobs every year if I'm doing it well. So maybe it's time to, to sort of put up my own shingle and make that more clearly my objective is to just work yeah. with people for, for a more limited window. So the company was initially called M Diesel Media because, you know, you have to write something down on the paperwork when you file for an LLC and I hadn't thought yeah. it out yet. We've since rebranded to Story Fuel. But our mission is to work with brands, publishers, and, and marketers and help them sort of adapt the tools and best practices and processes that you find more often on that journalism side in the newsrooms and put that to work in your brand content team, inside of a publisher, inside your brand newsroom if you're you know, in a brand. And lately, I actually launched a, a mastermind because I'm trying to help people do that individually for people who might be like authors or you know, speakers like us, you know, entrepreneurs, small business owners. They don't maybe have a whole team, but they can take some of those best practices and put them into work in an individualized way that can be very helpful too. So I'm trying to take what I love about storytelling and, and share it with as many people as possible. That's awesome. And the mastermind thing, it's so funny. I've, I've never like directly participated in a mastermind. And the only reason I'm saying that I've been invited to a lot of them and I just, it's so funny because I, I, it's something that I've wanted to do because I just think there's just huge value in it, right? I mean, it's like having a, a mentor. That was one of the things I've talked about this in past podcasts. I wish I would have had a mentor 10 mentors growing up, right? I mean, it's the thing yeah. was, I was always kind of like, oh, I've got it. Like I can figure this out. And I probably spent a hundred thousand hours that I didn't need to spend. If I would have just asked the right people, the right questions, people that I'd yeah. helped or people, you know, it's like, but I, I do think the mastermind is probably a, a brilliant idea. Cause you, I mean, you talk about accelerated learning, right? I mean, you have this chance to be able to like take whatever, where you're at today and go tenfold and 10 times faster. So I think that's awesome. You're, you're putting that together for everybody. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, where it came from for me is that most of my work up to that point with Story Fuel for the last three years, you know, that's how long we've been around, almost four years. I was primarily working with big brands. I've been lucky. I've gotten to work with finance brands, big tech brands, you know, insurance companies, diamond retailers, all this stuff. But they're big companies with big budgets and big teams. And I think the realization for me was my ability to have an impact is probably even greater on a small team, on a two-person marketing team, on a mom and pop shop that if they could just learn a few of these little things, it could make a massive difference in their business, in their life. And at the time, I just didn't have a way. I mean, I didn't have packages or scalability to be able to do that. And so the only way I could think to do it was, well, if I get a group of 10 to 12 of these folks together and I can address them in a group way, we can work together, I can still have that time, that impact, but do it in a way that's scalable because I can't just spend all day working with just one person, you know? So it was sort of like a, a journey to get to that point of realizing like, okay, if we can get a few of these smaller folks together from all different organizations, different backgrounds, different places around the country and get in a room and have these conversations about setting strategy, about content repurposing, about coming up with content ideas, then we could all grow together. And that's been super exciting for me because I think, again, you see the fruits of that labor much more quickly. Sometimes if you work with a, a big brand, it's like we were talking about this before. It takes, you know, a year and a half and 16 rounds of legal review to, to change copy on the website. But when you're a small agile team or a solopreneur, you can, you can make changes so quickly. It's that delicate balance because it's like the smaller companies don't have the budget, right? You want to, you don't always want to go with budget, but the thing yeah. is, 
then it's like just mind numbing. You know, I had this, I'm not going to say the client, but I had a certain client that I was working with in California. Actually, I'll just tell you, it was the state of California. I was doing consulting for the state of California and it was very, very slow process for me. Yeah. And for me, I'm like, Hey, let's get this done. Let's move on to the next thing. And it was just a very slow process. And I'm, I'm going to, that's the nicest way that I can say it for me. I literally would have to, I would tell my wife, I think I'm going to have to medicate myself because I'm going to have to go in this meeting and go, listen, you can't be in six gear, bud. You just can't like, and it's just, and so I, I like the smaller companies. Once you said it's agile, it's quick. They can make adjustments. There's a two or three person. They go, Hey, let's do this. Yep. Let's do it. Boom. You get it done. And next, you know, you're starting to see some fruits of the labor, right? Because it's happening yeah. in front of you and you're like, God, that's awesome. But the hard part is, is like in the beginning, I always had startups that I work with. If they're not funded. They don't have budgets. You know, like I do want to help you because I know there's some good tweaks that I could help you guys with that you guys would start to see some change. But last time I checked, I can't pay my mortgage with a, like an IOU from a startup that I'm working with. So the, I always try yeah. to, in the beginning, that was hard for me of like, because I want to help everybody, right? And like, how are we going to be able to make it so economies of scale? Mm -hmm. So mastermind is a great way. Everybody can pay whatever it is to get in the mastermind. You're doing one hour, but you're doing it with 12 people. And so you're maximizing that time. So I think that's awesome that you did that. I'm, I've talked about doing a mastermind. I might do that over time just because I think it's, I think you can have that at higher impact. There's some other stuff we're working on courses and all that, which is a whole nother conversation. But yeah. And then how did you start promoting? promoting your brand. I mean, it kind of sounds like you naturally were working with these brands. I'm sure once you start off on your own, they were like, all right, I'm your first client. All right, I'm your second client. <laughs> right? I mean, at that point, it's like you yeah. already have everybody know you. It's like- Exactly. I was very lucky on a few accounts. And you know, I say luck, I don't want to discount, you know, also hard work and good performance and networking and all these other things that contribute as well. But I was coming from a series of roles where my full job was to interact with people who worked at different brands, to work with their yeah. agency teams. So I had a lot of network connections because I came from the journalism world. I knew a lot of people who were working in different media organizations that were going through the same trouble, trying to set up a brand team, trying to set up a native ad team. So once I sort of put out into the world the vibes of like, hey, I'm starting my own thing. I'm available for this kind of help. I was really blessed to get a lot of inbound from people that I knew that I had connected with and maintained relationships with. I didn't have to do a ton of like cold calling. The other thing that I had working for me is I was working as a, as a speaker as well. So many of these roles at the different organizations, I would go out and represent the work that our team was doing at different industry conferences. So I had experience speaking on stage and I knew the power of speaking on stage at, to market your business. But I also knew it as something that allowed me to have great impact. So part of my strategy when I started what became Story Fuel was I was a speaker and consultant. And the reason was sometimes I can address audiences and get paid for that that wouldn't otherwise be able to become clients. So that's wonderful. Still furthering our mission, you know, educating people. Other times I can speak to an audience where many of those people may become consulting clients. So it worked both for impact and for marketing and, and in creating inbound demand. So over the last couple of years, I've actually shifted the balance and, and have done usually more speaking, actually, because I like anything, the more you do it, the better you get. You learn the systems, you learn how it works. And I find that I really love it. And I, again, I love that I can get on stage and impact 750 people in one hour. And maybe not all of them will take action. Maybe it won't transform everyone's entire life. But the emails you get or this, the feedback on social media from people showing you that they've put into action something that you taught them in that one hour on stage, it feels really good. I like getting that kind of feedback and knowing that it's making a difference. So I've definitely done a lot more speaking in the last few years than I was at first. Yeah, no, I understand that. It's nice to be able to have that kind of a big impact, especially when you're saying stuff. 
But in the beginning, I used to, I think people already know this stuff. And then when I get off the stage, I'm like, oh my God, like they, and people were, when you, when they come and they respond, oh my God, that was amazing. This and I thought, for me, I think this is kind of basic information for yeah. me, but for them, it's like, like it can make a huge impact. And I think that's, what's kind of nice about it is if you can make that impact over a, a large amount of people that, you know, once again, it gets one person that aha moment and changes things, maybe their transition of life or what they've got going on, which is kind of nice to know that you have the, the power of doing yeah. that. So how do you like, I'm thinking about, you obviously work with some really big brands. Like when you talk about like content ideas, ideas and how do you work on something like that because I mean I think that's the, the hardest part is like whether you're a big brand or small brand is like content ideas like how putting that together and like that process yeah. of like putting that story together I guess like how do, is there a process that you have that you put in place with your clients or like let's talk about that a little bit so one of the things I want to differentiate because I think that different people use a lot of the terms that we use in marketing in different ways so when I talk about content ideas and brand stories I mean the things that you are saying on your blog in your videos you know in the copy on your website what I'm not talking about is sort of your overall brand messaging, right? I'm not going to come into your company and tell you how to position yourself, who you are, right? But I am going to help you communicate that information to your audience through the different content channels you have, right? So sometimes I have to clear that up first because someone says, look, we have a logo and we need a brand story. And I'm like, well, that's more branding. and Like that's not quite my expertise, but when it comes to creating those platforms, whether it's we're setting up a blog or we want to start a YouTube series, we have Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and we don't know what to say three times a day, you know, for the entire year, that can be really intimidating. It's, it feels a little bit sometimes like you're feeding this machine that's always just hungrier and hungrier yeah. and you can't keep up. And that's super intimidating. What I found is I really enjoy that process and at first articulate where those ideas were coming from. So my value to many of the brands I worked with at first was my ability to walk into the room and just give them a hundred content ideas, right? Yeah. But that's not scalable. I can't do that for everyone. And it's the whole thing, right? Teach a man to fish. I can't just keep fishing for everyone. That's not sustainable. So I needed to figure out how to articulate that process. And it took me a while. It's, it's tough when you have, like we're talking about these innate skills that you don't realize are learned skills. It's, it's just something that you know how to do. Sometimes the process of breaking that down and deconstructing it is actually really difficult. So it took me a while, but what I finally figured out is what I was essentially doing in my mind was creating a matrix, a grid, if you will, where different approaches or lenses on storytelling were on one side, and then the formats in which you could bring that story to life were on the other side. And so my brain was sort of evaluating which combinations are going to be right, given our goals, given our resources. And so what I created was something that I call the Story Fuel Content Idea Matrix. And so that's exactly what it is, is this grid where I've defined some really common and, and really useful frameworks for looking at storytelling. So, you know, for example, formats, right? We could do it through audio, like all of you are listening to right now, through video, through writing, through infographics. So you have a concept of like those different ways we bring stories to life. But then you think about what are the, the focuses is what I call them. So the ways you would tell a story. You could tell a story about a person. You could tell a story through your opinion. You could tell a story by curating different things. You could tell a story through history, by looking back at something. What's the history of this particular topic? So by combining those different things, you wind up with so many different combinations. And even if you don't create all of them or use all of them, it at least gives you like a high number of ideas to sort through and start and make sure that you're choosing the best one and not just the first one because it's the only one you could think of. So I have a question for you. So what you just touched on, is this happen to maybe potentially be in this thing we call a book that might be coming out? Is it this does. It does. So that's exactly where the book's going to be. So this process that I was talking about, as I said, it took me a while to kind of come up with it. 
And once I said, I think this is what my brain is doing, I wonder if this makes sense to anyone else. I presented it a little over a year ago in a workshop environment. And I said, look, let's try this out. Here's what, how I think. Can you think this way as well, right? And sort of seeing if I could teach yeah. people how to use that process. And to my absolute elation, people loved it, right? They started adopting it. They were adapting it in their own ways, you know, adding their own rows and columns based on industry or team specific needs. And I was like, I think there's something here. I just found that the reaction, the way people reacted to it was so strong. So I kept presenting it. I kept using it in workshops and getting feedback, you know, thoughts about what was working, what wasn't. And so I adapted it over the course of several months. And once I felt like, okay, I think this is a thing. I think I made a thing. I thought, well, now I've got to share the thing with people. And the easiest way to share it with as many people as possible was to put it all together in a book. So that is what I spent better part of probably three to six months in bits and pieces between everything else, putting that manuscript together. And I actually just yesterday, as we're recording this, got the uh, revisions back from the editor. So it's, it's on its way to being a, a very real book that will be coming out in probably February or March of 2020. So a book and a baby. Yep. Oh no, that's a great little combo right there. You've been busy. It's a great deadline. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, right. Getting like, that book written in time. Man, we're not even going to talk about my book because my book is like, I've been talking about a book for I don't know how long. And every podcast person I talk to like, oh, you just got to do it. And I've got outlines and all this other fun stuff. I'm more excited about your book. So I'm going to read your book and maybe <laughs> that'll get me one step closer to, to writing my book. But so in regards to like content, so obviously you know, the, the strategy side of things, yeah. if somebody wants to write a, like a, a company or brand wants to write a more remarkable piece of content, you might touch on this in the book as well. What is your process for this? Is there like a process you have that you say, okay, to write a good piece of content? I know you talked about the, you know, the lenses and that and that kind of how, mm -hmm. it, you know, and you say, okay, this is the overlap and this is what you need to do is YouTube videos because you have this kind of a story and it's whatever. Yep. How does that work with creating a piece of content? Is it kind of the same thing? So it's a little bit different. So the matrix that I was talking about is really useful for coming up with ideas. If you're like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what we should talk about. You know, we have this event or this product or this need, and I'm not sure how to tell that story, right? The matrix will be very useful for that, for filling in the blank of this is how we communicate that to our audience. If you're settled on an idea and you kind of want to figure out, well, how do I now put it into action, create this thing that we've decided to create? That I would say is a little bit of a different process. I and mean, I do definitely talk about that on stage and in consulting. It's not part of this particular book. You may be getting clues as to what the next one will be. But yeah, the point that you want to look at when you're trying to create the content is really making sure that you have a clear goal up front, right? So that's always the first question I would say is, why are we making this and how will we know it's successful? You've got to answer those questions because that's going to determine in many ways how you approach creating it, right? Making sure you're saying the right for things sure. in the right way for the right people. So having that goal, why are we creating it and how will we know it's successful? Asking that first before you make anything is always my recommendation. And then I would say there's a few things that I think of them more like a checklist than maybe a process because you use them to different degrees and in different order. But one of the questions that I always encourage people to ask is what's unique about this story? So oftentimes, especially in marketing, we want to talk about our products, we want to talk about our event, our achievements, and oftentimes that's going to have a hard time breaking through the noise because we're talking about ourselves in a way. So asking what's unique about this story, what's, the, what's truly special, why should someone care about this? So if you can ask that question, that will often give you clues on the way you should approach the story. Another recommendation I would have is to always look for as many sources as you can, so human or non-human, and again, this is coming from the journalism side of things it's always better if you can get someone else to say something that you believe than to say it yourself, yeah. right? So rather than talking about how great your product is, have customers say that, have clients say that. 
Rather than talking about how earth-shattering your new report is, find a researcher who can back up that claim and say that your research is really interesting. So just looking for sources. So, you know, there's a few little tactics like that, questions to ask yourself and, and things to try to do to, to beef up the credibility of that yeah. content or how compelling that content can be. But yeah, there's definitely some room for a, a process to follow in that area too, I think. Yeah, a little third-party validation, right? A little social proof, never heard anything. Yep. So who would you, when you look at, and obviously you've worked with a lot of the big brands, but who would you look at in regards to companies that are crushing like their content marketing campaigns? Like, is there anybody you look at and you go, oh, Nestle, I saw what you did right <laughs> there. You guys are doing awesome. Like, is there any, yeah. either big company or small company that, that you recognize and going, wow, they're doing an awesome job? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple. I think there's like the darlings, right? You know, we have, I never want to say Red Bull or Apple or Coke or yeah. like any of those big brands, if you can avoid it, right? Yeah. I think Blue Bottle Coffee is a company that I think has done some really cool and creative stuff. So they were one of the first brands I became aware of. I actually heard Ann Hanley, a fellow, fellow speaker in the content space, talking about it. They created a course on Skillshare about how to brew the perfect cup coffee. So that was my cue of like, wow, they're really thinking about educating their consumers. Not many brands put together a free course to teach their audience how to do something. But Blue Bottle has also put out like a coloring book for kids and a coffee table book that's, you know, beautiful photos from the coffee industry. So they're, I like the way they think differently about what form content can take, you know? Didn't they just get sold to? I thought they got purchased for like a billion oh, bucks or something. Like a, maybe it might have been a year ago. I remember, yeah, because they were in San Francisco and I remember there was a really popular brand. I was also a fan of their, some of their content. The emails that they would send out were always great and they had some cool stuff there. And it's funny, I'm actually going to see Ann Hanley next week. I'm going there to content in Toronto. So I'll tell you, you said hi. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. Like blue, but I'll have to look into that, but I do think that it was they Nestle. Yeah. I think the majority stake is Nestle. So there you go. That was your, that oh, was your first example. And it turns like, out Nostradamus. it was right. That's crazy. <laughs> Who knew that was not planned folks. This is just, sometimes the vibes are just there. And it that's just, just what back. happens. That's what happens. It's called life <laughs> folks. That's it. You got to tap into that. So tell us about three apps that like, what are three apps that you can't live without? It can be in regards to the content space or mm. just the apps you're like, God, if I didn't have these apps, it would be, life would be different. I really like Twitter. I know that's not special or unique in any sort of way. That's where I think I've just curated a group of people and organizations that I really enjoy. And so it's a place that keeps me informed. I laugh all the time. I find so many things that I want to share with others. So I really just like the access to information that it gives me. So that's usually my go-to if I'm like, waiting for the bus or, you know, waiting in line for coffee. I'm like, let me just, let's just see what's happening on Twitter, you know? Yep. So uh, that's a big one. That's funny. We call Twitter, I, well, I call it like the, like I call Facebook is like the dinner party. And then I call Twitter is like when everybody's drunk at the party, like everybody's already had. It's like the after like, party. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, who knows what's going to happen? Like somebody's on the printer, you know, taking a picture of their butt naked or something. Like, <laughs> Twitter's kind of like, you can kind of tap into something. You're like, I don't know what I'm going to get into, but it's going to be something you got to, oh, yeah. you know, you can still be the guy who has a beer and kind of watching everybody else going crazy or, you know, it's just, it's, there's some fun stuff that happens on Twitter. I'm actually a huge fan of Twitter as my, myself. I used to be heavy, heavy on it all the time. I'm not as much, yeah, um, as I am. but I do, I do like to tap into it because you just never know what you're going to see. And I get, you get some, you know, up-to-date news and stuff like that. It's been interesting. So what are some other apps or some other, you know, I guess, software, anything? I don't know if this is necessarily the sexiest answer, but the Gmail app, I'm all about doing things on the go, especially like if you're speaking a lot, you're traveling. And so it took me a long time to find the right mail app. And I finally realized that the Gmail app is just the one that I love the most. I think it's the most intuitive and it helps me get a ton of stuff done. But my other app that's like managing my entire life, 
is Todoist. It's like to-do list, but with no L. And I use that as my task management system. So if you guys are familiar with like Trello or Wonderlist or Asana, it's in that same sort of family of task management tools. But I have been using Todoist since 2013, like early days, like beta. And so my entire freaking life is in Todoist. Like I have reminders for my health and wellness, you know, to get a new prescription for my contact lenses, like to water my plants, you know, birthdays are in there projects and tasks are in there. I mean, if they ever close, you all may never hear from me again because I'll just be hiding under a rock somewhere because my entire life is managed through there. You'll be blind. You won't be able to get your eye. I mean, all that kind of stuff. I'll be ill, blind. Toilet paper. Yeah. My plants are dead. (laughs) That's a struggle. No, I, you know, it's funny. So I have, I've used other project management software and this, that, and the other. I've used to-do lists before. And then I've also used, God, there's a few other ones that I've used in the past. I just use Apple. I just use notes now. Like, for notes for me because it's searchable and it's on my my on um, both i don't know i've you know i go back and forth with you know because i'm a huge list type yeah. person like i'll have you know i mean as you nobody can see this but i'm holding up a yellow notepad i've got like sixteen thousand of them on my desk Same. like all over the place <laughs> and post-it notes and stuff because that'll that keeps me insane but and I didn't say saying, I said insane, but the, it's the list thing I think is, I don't know, there's something about writing lists and the idea of like the way having that just right in front of you is just so easy and accessible for me. So, yeah, well, and that's, people sometimes ask me for a recommendation and I say, look, I like Todoist because I've used it for so long. I figured out yeah. how to make it work for me. I don't know what the right tool is for you, but the most important thing is just that you have some sort of system that you use and trust and rely on. And for me, Todoist is that system because I've just, you know, when you have it for so long, the switch cost is so high to like move your whole life over to some new system. Well, they know that. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the whole the idea is, is they like, got hey, us. once you, yeah, I mean, that's, but that's the same with Gmail. I mean, there's, you know, the idea of it is just to make it so convenient that you don't ever leave. And then there's other things they can sell you. I use Evernote as well. I haven't yeah. used as, I mean, I use it for like documents and stuff like that. I just want to put up in the cloud, but I've never used it like the full blown Evernote that I think what it could be. Just yeah. Cause it just, like I said, it, the list thing, and there's some other things that, that don't resonate as well with me, but I do have a good system now of knowing where my stuff is at, you know, so I don't have it all on my desktop and I try to remember to upload it and all the other fun stuff that, you know, stay somewhat organized. But I think it's important. One of the things that was a book I read, I can't remember the book, but you talk about the thousand things that you think about, whether you really think about it or it's happening behind the scenes, if you can get rid of some of that stuff, right? And that's, I think, yep. where lists happen and Evernote, oh, I got to do this. Okay. I put this document up. Now I know it's saved. I don't have to think about that. It can only take up, you know, 0.01% of your mind, but all those things over time, you get at a certain point where like, I, I can't do anything because there's all these things I need, something needs to give, right? And I so I think lists help. I don't know if this is the book you're talking about, but Getting Things Done with David Allen by David That's Allen, he talks yeah. a lot about sort of that, the cost of remembering, right? That you, like yes. just your brain, yeah, like at some little tiny part of your brain is trying to remember every single day, did I water the plants? Do I need to water the plants? I watered the plants, right? So by just freeing up that space and outsourcing it to someone or something else, you free up these micro portions of your brain. That's it. That's it. And I don't have a lot of my brain left. So I have to be very, I have to, <laughs> gotta, I have to, yeah, we got to salvage manage our thing. storage. Ooh, yeah. We got to do something because I know we're not, I'm not getting more Ram. I'm getting less Ram. I don't know yeah. how that's possible. And I, uh, anyways, we'll figure that out. Comes at you time. fast. But it does. It does. So are there any other cool projects you're working on these days? Anything else fun? I mean, you got a book and you got a baby. I mean, I don't yeah. know what else you can do. I mean, I know you yes. also teach. We didn't even jump into the university side of things. I know you've yeah. taught so, at like I mean, 35 universities or something. <laughs> I don't know. Like you're, you're yeah, I was, a, I was an adjunct for the online program at Syracuse, you know, where, I, where I'd gone to grad school. 
that came about just a, a former professor of mine was going on sabbatical and said, you took this class, you do this for work, you could probably fill in for me. And then I sort of played that role for several other professors just over the course of time teaching online courses there. Fairleigh Dickinson University here in New Jersey actually came to me and said that they were creating a, a master's of science in, in marketing. And one of their gaps was content marketing. So they had asked, you know, we can't find a course, we can't find someone who's teaching this at the college level. Could you develop a curriculum for us for a content marketing master's level course? So that was a that was a whole experience in and of itself. I, you know, I didn't study education and so I had to go through some learning myself, you know, through the university training on creating curriculums and education theory and all these kinds of things in order to do that successfully, which was really helpful and very interesting. I've stepped away from that course at this point. There's someone else who's teaching it for me while I'm on maternity leave. But yeah, it was a really interesting process to create a course like that from scratch. And obviously a lot you can take from that process and apply to your own work or, you know, for me, apply to my own work now with whether it's developing courses or just thinking about education in a little bit more strategic and theoretical way. So it's funny. So you and I, and I've, I've talked about this in past podcasts, but I used to teach it. Well, I still teach at UCLA. I'm just, I haven't gone back in a semester or a quarter or two, but it, the same issue, like, because I, UCLA came to me and said, Hey, we want you to teach this course. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And I went in and it was like, you just totally like huge learning curve. Like obviously I've been in the space and speaking and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Not a problem, but like developing curriculum for students is like, and you and I, so when you were saying that, I'm like, Ooh, I mean, I know that's like a, yeah, it was like, I mean, it's coming from left field. Like I'm like, I, you know, I've done workshops and all the other fun stuff, but I'm like, man, teaching for three hours a week for a whole quarter. That's a, that's a, it's a beast of a project. Or even just so many things that you never thought about, but the, of course there's yeah. thought put into it, you know, where you're like, I came up with this cool project and you're like, great. Now what's your student centered rubric philosophy for evaluating it? And you're like, I don't yeah. know what that means yet. Yeah. I'll get I'm back to you. That <laughs> rubric. That was one of the words I had to look up. Like literally somebody told me that and I was like, I, I got to look that one up. Like, I, I don't yeah. even know what that means at the, you know, yeah. now I do. Cause... But it's like, you need to have like a clear strategic way to evaluate every assignment and it has to be clearly articulated, which of course makes sense. You think of yeah. your experience yeah. as a student, I want to know how to get, how to do well and yeah. what's being graded and all that. But, yeah. but man, when you're building it from scratch, it's like, it's a lot of work. It's Teachers, we got to pay them more. I tell you, man, that, and that's, <laughs> that is, that definitely needs to happen. I'll tell you, that was, you know, we won't go into to payroll or anything, but it was, I was like, Oh, whoa, this really sucks. I can't do this full time. <laughs> yeah, we, we've been there. We've been there, but yep. shout out to UCLA and Syracuse. We love you guys still. So no, no bad feelings at all. We're, we're still with you guys. Okay, let's talk about this. So what is your idea of a perfect day? So we're going to break outside of work. Oh. Like if you didn't have to work, which I can't imagine you not working, to be honest, even maybe when you have a baby, you might not work as much, but I get so. it. I, I understand you're in sixth gear with me. You and I are running side by side. What would like, if you like on a Saturday, let's say you're not working, mm. which I don't know if that's possible. You and hubby are hanging out, baby's born, not born. I don't know, but you tell me yeah. what does a day look like where you're like, God, this is the perfect day. Well, it's funny. My husband is an entrepreneur as well. So your joke about like Saturday, maybe you're working. Yeah, we're a hundred percent working like the two of us all the time. And we help each other with projects, but mm -hmm. in an ideal world, you know, all of our finances finances are taken care of and, and of the world is our oyster. We could do, do as we please. Um, I would love to sleep until I wake up and I, mm. I just, I really hate like alarms. The whole thing just makes me really grumpy. I'm not a morning person. I like to sleep until I wake up. I like to have a cup of coffee outside, like on a deck, on a balcony, on a pat somewhere yeah. just outside Hello. with nature. I would like to have breakfast with my husband and then I would like to read and write. Like those are the things that I really just enjoy doing for myself that I don't get enough time to do that I think it's always easier to find work to do instead. You know, I've got like a collection of books that 
I passionately cannot wait to read and can never find the justification to read when there are other things to do. So I think that's what I would do if I had, and, and I, that's actually partially what I'm planning to do with some of this maternity leave is like work my way through some of those books. Yeah. Now that I don't have as many clients and, and travel and all these things on my plate, I'm hoping to make a dent in that sadly dusty bookshelf. It'll slow you down a little bit. So let's, <laughs> so we've got that with your perfect day entails. Now let's say if I gave you a 10 million winning, no, just mm. a $10 million lottery ticket, but a winning $10 million lottery ticket, how does that change things? Does that cup of coffee now have Bailey's in it? Or, I mean, are we now, <laughs> we, you're on a helicopter instead of, uh, you know, looking out on your thing? I mean, what's, or are you a simple person? You're like, you know what? I, I, I don't even need all that, Shane. And I'll just give it yeah. back to you because this was a great podcast interview. I mean, I'll share some with you. That definitely, yeah. I think. You're an angel. I don't think it would change much. I mean, I, I think the place where I'm doing all of this would probably be a little bit nicer, right? Like you, you upgrade where you live. Yeah. That's probably, that would probably be my, my first route. I'm an extremely practical person. So that I'm probably the worst for this, right? No helicopters, no, uh, <laughs> no they're, craziness they're happening. I'm like, I, I'll buy a, a slightly larger, more practical home. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, and the helicopters and the fueling is expensive. From what I understand. Yeah, I then you got to get a pilot. It's a whole thing. God, and then you got to clean it. It's like, oh, weekends. Jesus. Are you going to store it? Yeah. Now I, mean, I need I, a helicopter garage. Ugh. Yeah. That's, I tell you, the, <laughs> the best day of a helicopter owner's life is when he gets it and when he gets rid of it. <laughs> that's what I've heard. That's, that's <laughs> boats, but I just put it to helicopters. So, same. Yeah, same thing. So, Melanie Diesel, this was a great little interview. Just this was a lot of fun. fun. I, t- I don't want to bring this up. I would do this every Friday if we could change your name and we'd switch it up or maybe we just keep talking. I, I don't know. Maybe that sounds good. Mind just you and I. That sounds great. If anybody needs to get in contact with you, how do we go about doing that? How can they get in contact with the, the infamous Melanie Diesel? Well, the good news about being the infamous Melanie Diesel, which I just discovered that I am seconds ago, is that there is only one of me. So if you were to search for Melanie Diesel, D-E-Z-I-E-L, you will find me, whatever social platform you happen to be looking for. Our website is storyfuel.co. So fuel, diesel, like the fuel, story, F-U-E-L.co. You can find out all about the mastermind. You could find out about the book. You could find out about speaking, consulting, all the things we talked about, all there. And you can actually download a version of the matrix that we were talking about. So if you wanted to check that out, the content idea matrix and learn a little bit more about how to use that, there's a free PDF download of that. You could find it at storyfield.co as well. So wherever you'd like to find me, you can find me. Melanie's out there, you guys. There we got D-E-Z-I-E-L, Melanie Diesel. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You're an angel. Have a great weekend and good luck on having that beautiful little baby girl here soon. Thanks for letting me share my story. All right. We'll talk here soon. 